The scripture reading for today is Daniel 4, 1 through 37. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And, there was, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him the sentences by the decree of the watchers, the, peer, uh, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me its interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. So I will admit, I am a fan of watching commercials from the 50s and the 60s. I don't know what it is, but it's like you get re-immersed in a different world because our world has changed so much. So I'm going to show you a picture of one. And I am reasonably, reasonably assured that if you see it uh, and you lived in that era, you recognize it and you'll be able to sing the song with me, okay? So. How do you handle a hungry man? <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, this was... Now, what's so funny to me is, you know, how do you handle a hungry man? This is Jerry Philbin, late 60s. He played for the uh, New York Jets, defensive tackle. And what he needs is some Campbell's soup. That's what's going to take care of him, and he is good. Solving a hunger problem is fairly straightforward. But how do you handle a proud man? That is no small challenge, and that is not going to be solved by a can of Campbell's. The stakes are exceedingly high. I mean, listen to this passage from James. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A proud person is actually taking on God. And that will not be a winning battle. Nobody takes on God and prevails. But get this. But he gives grace to the humble. He sees humble people and he says, I want to give you things that are undeserved. So it matters profoundly to understand this thing called pride and how we can deal with it. A severe mercy. I remember that book. And God is going to show a severe mercy to Nebuchadnezzar in the form of a season of insanity. Really? That's an act of grace? Yes, it is. It is going to be hard. What he is going to go through is going to be profoundly difficult, but it will be good. It will accomplish something good in his life. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is awesome because of externals. You know, look at everything around me. It all says Nebuchadnezzar is amazing. He is not amazing. He's simply been blessed by God. And all that he enjoys and has accomplished are the product of God's goodness, not his prowess. Now, not everybody responds well when God introduces the pride pill, which is a solution to pride. For example, in Pharaoh's case, in his first encounter, Exodus 5-2, he meets this guy, Moses. I don't know if he knew Moses from before. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, but besides, I will not let Israel go. <laughs> Ouch. Proud man. Before Plague 8, which was the locusts, so he's, he's experienced some of them and they keep ramping up. Uh, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. He's refusing to be humble. And it didn't end well for him, did it? Well, the account that was just read to us is about 
Someone who, unlike Pharaoh, responds well when God administers a pride pill. And we want to understand this because this is not a mere intellectual exercise. It matters profoundly that we be a people who are humble before the Lord. So let's get some background on Daniel chapter 4. Now, the Babylonian Chronicles, it's a historical account from the time, only covers the first 11 years of Daniel's reign. So, and there's nothing of the sort described in this. So this probably didn't happen in the first 11 years. Uh, in Daniel 29 and 30, where he says, you know, I was walking on the roof and he says, is this not Babylon, the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Uh, that sounds like a guy who's kind of looking back on all he's done. So this is probably something that comes later in life, not, is, not in the early stages. Now, we've seen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar is making progress. For example, after the dream reveal, you know, after Daniel revealed the, the, what this image was about, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said this, God, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. In other words, your God is special. After the flames, which was the previous chapter, uh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego honors and delivers those who serve him alone. There is no other God who's able to deliver in this way. So he's moved from God is special to your God is in a class by himself. But by the end of this one, this confession, much of it in the first person, is going to take us to another level. Now, this chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's a confession by him. Uh, I don't know if this was like a a tract that was distributed throughout his empire, but it was written for that purpose. And Daniel has included Nebuchadnezzar's confession tract in the book of Daniel. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought the book was written by Daniel. What's this letter from Nebuchadnezzar doing in there? And I would say, this is not unheard of in the Bible. Uh, for example, a little later in history, in the book of Ezra, uh, Ezra 4.11, Ezra 7.12, you're actually hearing or reading letters to or from Artaxerxes. And those letters were actually quoted accurately in the book of Ezra. The Bible is inspired which means when it says someone said this, that's what they said. When someone wrote this, that's what they wrote. And in this case, what it says in the first person where Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, that's what he said. You can count on that. So this is not historical fiction. This is an actual first person account in which, get this, Daniel has got a letter and he's saying, I want you to hear it in Nebuchadnezzar's own voice. Here's what he said. Here's what God did. So Daniel interpreted the dream, and one year later, Nebuchadnezzar goes off the rails. And for a period, it says seven seasons. We don't know exactly what that is, but it could be seven years. For a period of seven years, he lives like a cow. 
and then he recovers. So this whole season from dream interpretation to recovery could have been eight years long. Now when Nebuchadnezzar gives his account, he bookends it with the conclusion, with two benedictions. So there's one on the front, verses one through three, and then the latter verses. And these capture Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion that he arrived at by going through this period. This is the voice of someone to whom God has given a pride bill that involved an eight-year process, and he comes out of it, and these are the things he says. Now, here's the preface. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! And how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. So that was actually written after the eight years, but it was the preface to his account. Then he gives us the account. Then at the end, in verses 34 and 35, verse 37, he says this, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth were accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, and this to me is the most powerful part, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and get this and he is able to humble those who walk in pride fine print like yours truly are those the words of a man we will meet in heaven I can't say for sure but it sure sounds like it particularly because you can't approach God through self-sufficiency. The only way we approach God is in complete dependence on him. Uh, Rochelle and I were having dinner with someone from the church on Friday night, and uh, the hostess uh, recounted a tale from her spiritual pilgrimage, and she mentioned that uh, she grew up in a church where they would you know, walk the aisle, and she said, you know, I walked the aisle quite a few times. But I remember thinking, you know, I have a lot to offer God. Well, she later came to Christ. Those moments weren't it. It doesn't work that way. The way you come and approach the Lord is by saying, I have nothing to earn your favor. And that sounds a lot like what we're hearing with Nebuchadnezzar. So let's focus in on several features of the narrative and try and get an understanding. I'm not going to go through verse by verse. I had them read it entirely, so you got it all. So I'm going to just pick different things that we're looking at. So Nebuchadnezzar is basking in ease in the palace, and he experiences a frightening night dream. The words there actually tell us that he was really freaked out by it. And he summoned the usual group, which, by the way, included one group uh, that wasn't included in the Daniel 2 account. It says the diviners or astrologers. 
Uh, he shared the dream with them. He didn't say, you have to tell me what the dream is. He told them what the dream was, but they looked through the manuals. They couldn't find anything that fit, and they said, we got nothing. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, says, well, where's Daniel? He's my guy. Daniel apparently wasn't in the, the group, but was he in some higher office or something? I suppose so, but he comes, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, what you saw is a massive tree that actually goes global, reaches to the sky, and it's a fit image for Nebuchadnezzar's ego. And then a watcher, which is probably an angelic being, authorizes the felling and disposal of the tree. The stump is retained with a metal band on it, and we don't have access to information about Babylonian forestry to really know what that means. So I don't know, you know, what it means to have a stump and then a stump with a band on it. But apparently, from the context, we can discern that means that there's some kind of preservation. Maybe it was marked as one, don't remove this stump. I want the stump to remain as a testament to the tree that was there. In the account, as he's describing the tree, he shifts from it to him it starts using a personal pronoun which means that the tree is not an it it is a person Daniel's goal really God's goal in giving this experience to Nebuchadnezzar is unpacked in verse 17 Daniel says in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets, over, sets it over the lowliest of men. Is anyone here not living? Okay, you're all living. Good, I'll, I'll take from that that you're alive. This happened to Nebuchadnezzar, not just for Nebuchadnezzar. According to Daniel, who's giving us the interpretation, this was given, this experience was given to him so that the living may know, which is everybody in this room. This is designed for you and for me. This is not just about straightening out Nebuchadnezzar. It's about, let's look at what we can learn from this so that hopefully God can straighten out me. God is humbling Nebuchadnezzar for the benefit of the living. That's what we know from verse 17. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Most men quarrel with this, the sovereignty of God, the fact that he controls all things. But Mark, the thing that you complain of in God is the very thing that you love in yourselves. Every man likes to feel that he has a right to do with his own as he pleases. We all like to be little sovereigns. Oh, for a spirit that bows always before the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar is going to show us something that will help everyone in this room who is drawing breath how to deal with the pride problem, which was not just his problem. It's our problem. Now, Daniel finds the meaning of the dream very disturbing he's hesitant to share it with King Nebuchadnezzar he's actually he kind of goes silent you know and the king has to coax it out of him it makes me wonder if there is some warmth between them that has developed over the years 
you know, have Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel bonded to some extent. And he says, I, I, mm, I, I don't want to tell you this. But basically he says, you are the tree and you will be chopped down until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now I think this is interesting. Remember when we looked at a certain passage uh, in this series where David was asking, will they come to this town? And if they, meet Saul and his army, come to this town, will the inhabitants give me up? And God said, they will come, the people will give you up. So Daniel, or David left. That never happened. Well, Daniel is very aware of the fact that God has given you a glimpse of a highly likely future, but you don't have to do that if you'll take my advice right now. So in verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. What he's saying is, this doesn't have to be your future if you will humble yourself now. Remember what I told you? You probably don't remember, but uh, back when we were doing the series in Numbers, which was about a year ago, I guess, I mentioned this. We don't get to choose what lessons we have to learn, but we do get to decide whether we will learn them the hard way or the easy way. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar stands right now. And he is deciding, I need the hard way to learn about pride. God will use consequences as we require. And that's what's gonna happen here to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't take Daniel's advice Pride blinds. And so one year later, he's kind of roaming around on a rooftop in their culture. Uh, you know, roaming on the rooftop at my house would be something where I'd be really pleading with God because I could fall. But here you have flat roof structures that are actually living space. And he's out there, perhaps in a location that's several stories up. And he goes, whoa, Babylon my life's work is a testament to my might and my glory he might have even have been singing something like this it's all about me and in that moment the vision is immediately and fully realized now it says there's a band on the stump I wonder about this. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to ask. Uh, we can ask Daniel. But I wonder if Daniel kept the kingdom intact because he knew Nebuchadnezzar has been given a choice. Learn the easy way, learn the hard way. He's chosen the hard way, so I'm going to hold things together for him until the seven seasons have passed. I don't know that, but I wonder about that. Could be. Now this is some kind of insanity that has a purpose. 
You know, Nebuchadnezzar is insane. Yes, but he's insane for a purpose. God's got a plan. It's really interesting to me, there's an irony here, that Nebuchadnezzar sinks to beast level. In 2.38, Daniel 2.38, he was actually told about this image, and you're the head of gold, and he was declared the ruler of beasts. And now he's become a beast. What was this like? I mean, you know, what would you do if your ruler was uh, not just getting old or whatever, but is out kind of munching grass and, <laughs> I don't know, seven years. But there came a moment when something clicked. And Nebuchadnezzar said this, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. He was, you know, I don't know, munching some grass and he looks up and I raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then he said, now I, this is in the end of the book, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He's acknowledging, I had a serious pride problem. Yet God was perfectly capable of bringing me through insanity that brought me to a place where I actually became healthy. He's saying, I choose to praise, to exalt, to honor the one who justifiably and reliably nailed my pride and brought me to a place of humble dependence on him. In essence, Nebuchadnezzar is expressing gratitude for severe mercy that reveals pride. Eight years earlier, he didn't see it. It was evident to God. It was perhaps evident to others, evident to Daniel. He didn't see it, couldn't admit it. But God brought him through a process where he was able to actually look in the mirror and see something. Now God didn't do that just for Nebuchadnezzar. According to Daniel, who's reporting this to us, he says, this was actually designed to be a profound and powerful lesson for all of us. Pride is a killer, but God can rescue us from it. Nebuchadnezzar is a poster child for the danger of pride-based living, but he's designed to illustrate it for us all. So here's my first kind of takeaway from this book. Thank God for severe mercies that remind you of your complete dependence on God. Have you not encountered situations like that where you realize, I am in over my head. I am helpless to change this. There is no way this is going to get better. I don't have what's needed to do it. Praise God for those moments. 
Because that's when we can say, God, I am counting on you because I don't have what it takes. There is not in me what is needed to be able to turn this around. Now, it was interesting to me that in this account, when Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, here, do these things to address the pride issue. He said, do righteousness and show mercy. That was Daniel's prescribed treatment for him. If Nebuchadnezzar had done that, then he wouldn't have had to go through the seven years. Is that what it means to not be proud? Apparently so. To do what is right, which is basically a way of submitting to God's standard of what is right and wrong, and then to show mercy is anti-pride. Jeremiah 22.16 says this, He, and he's referring to Josiah, the previous king, he pled the cause of the afflicted and needy, then it was well with him. Is that not what it means to know the Lord? To know me, declares the Lord? In other words, to know God means doing what is right and showing mercy. And that's actually an antidote to pride. I'm struck by something in Romans chapter 1. It outlines the deterioration of our culture in three phases. God gave them over to this. They did this. God gave them over to this. They did this. God gave them over to this. And it's really talking about the destruction of a society or a culture as they decide to factor God out of the equation. You know what the last thing is? Without mercy. People who are proud don't know how to show mercy. So what that means is I can actually find ways to minister to others and show them mercy, which means giving to those who are in crisis what is undeserved goodness. If I can look for situations like that, that is actually an antidote to pride, according to Daniel. Now I want to show you a couple more just because I want you to have some some tools in your kit, okay? Uh, Think of these all as pride pills, but they're a specific kind. So for example, here's the perspective pill. In Psalm 36, 1 and 2, it says, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Fear of God, which means I want God's approval more than the approval of men. I want God's approval more than my approval. So what that is telling me in this passage is if I can replace me with thee as the one whose approval matters, that will help me deal with the pride issue. Um, One of the things that I do, I actually, I I thought about reading it to you, but I thought, no, I don't think that's a good idea. But I I have kept different letters, and not just letters of encouragement. I keep letters of encouragement, but I also keep letters that are otherwise. And there's a certain letter that someone sent to the church Uh, with some very scathing comments as regards me. 
You know, we're so glad Jim Fleming is leaving our church and we can get our new pastor. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and I don't want you taking up an offense with me because of what I'm about to tell you, which is I keep that letter. In fact, this week I pulled it out and I read it a couple times. Why? Because it forces me to remember this. It is a small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. I don't even examine myself. The one who examines me is the Lord. It forces me to say, God, yours is the only opinion that matters. And I live for your good opinion. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, ultimately. That has got to be our way of doing everything. I am doing this for the pleasure of my Savior. Not for anybody else. That's why I do what I do. And that act chisels away at this weed called pride. And it won't grow. By the way, the other ver- the verse I was quoting is 1 Corinthians 4. I didn't quote the whole passage, but 3 through 5. is a small thing that I'd be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, they don't even examine myself. Because get that, even my opinion of me doesn't see the big picture. God does. So I live all in for him, and I leave it with him. Uh, Here's the praise pill, all right? That was the perspective pill. Here's the praise pill. This one comes from Hosea 13, verses 5 and 6. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Israel came into the land, and then God gave them many good things. And they were really satisfied. Wow, this is awesome. This is great. And then their heart became proud. And they forgot God. So make praise your practice is what this one is. Uh, Now the way this works in my life is uh, I have one day a week. uh, And it varies with whatever church I'm at. Here at First of Anne, that day of the week is Friday, is my Sabbath. And I do my best to make that a day where I pull back from normal as much as possible. But one of the things that I do, and I have multiple journals, but I, you know, I'm currently working through one journal, and I will write the date, and then I will simply say, God, thank you for, thank you for, I am so grateful for. What I'm trying to do is express to God the fact that I, I recognize that all of these good things come from you. I've got him to thank. And so I am expressing gratefulness for God's gifts. This, by the way, is one of the benefits of our times of praise and worship. We get to, as a congregation, sing together and say, we are thanking you for all the good things we enjoy. We have you to thank for that. That is an antidote against pride. You know, one of the things I do in my journal is I actually thank God for things that are awful that I know he is going to use to accomplish good. So some of the entries would read something like this. God, right now, I don't understand this, but I'm choosing to thank you for this because I know that you are a perfect father and you give me what will serve my true good. And so I'm choosing to thank you for that. Here's the penmanship pill. 
This is from Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 20. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that his heart may not be lifted up. What's going on here? When someone becomes a king in Israel, God said, here is what I want him to do. First thing, sit in a room with the religious leaders and write out word for word, kind of like you wrote on the blackboard when your kid growing up in school when they used to make you do that sort of thing back in the 50s and 60s. I want you to write out the word of God. I want you to write out the Pentateuch, word for word. And then you're going to keep that copy with you every day of your life. You're going to read it every day of your life. Maybe not the whole thing through, but you're going to keep working your way through it and through it. Why? Your exposure to God's word is going to tamp down this weed called pride. He says that his heart may not be lifted up. So one of the other things that I do personally, and I'm not saying this is the only way, I'm just trying to help you understand the hows of things. So on uh, almost every day of the week, what I do, and this is not sermon preparation, although a lot of things that happen in this show up in sermons, but I work my way through God's word. I've read through it many, many times, the whole Bible. And so let's say I'm doing the book of uh, Daniel. I basically say, God, would you please show me what I need to see? And then I read until some verse jumps out at me, and then I write down that verse. And then I write down, what are the implications of this verse for my life? And I've done that for years. We have stacks of journals. Now, I've shifted to computer now, so I don't have a... uh, I'm doing that all on a computer, but it's the same thing. I'm basically saying, God, show me what I need to see. Teach me what I need to hear. And then I'm figuring out, how does that relate to my life? And according to what God said to the kings of Israel, that will tamp down pride. Pride is a problem. All of us have within us the germ that can grow into a thing that makes us someone that God would say, I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud. We don't want to be that. Pharaoh refused to humble himself before God, and it didn't work out. Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before God, but he had to go there the long way. I won't be surprised if we get to meet him in heaven. That will be really fun, won't it? I mean, what was it like being a cow? You know, doing that. That was definitely, that was not glamping, glamour camping. That was roughing it. And yet God used that. We can humble ourselves right here, right now. What you can do, and we're we're going to do this in a minute, is just picture everything that you consider a blessing, a gift. Spouse, family, home, finances, uh, good food. 
Have you ever thought about the fact, I encountered this with my dad when he had a serious stroke, um, his taste buds didn't work anymore. And so, you know, we took him out for a nice steak dinner and he said, you know, I know this is supposed, you know, this is my favorite and it's supposed to be really good, but I'm just chewing on a piece of leather here. Thank God for flavor. Thank God for all these incredible gifts. Picture everything, you know, in your mind, line it all up. See the family around you, the friends, the good things. And then we're going to affirm, God, I have you to thank for every good thing I enjoy. That's the kind of people that God says, I want to give grace to the humble. Now, on October 23, which is in two weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to express our humility before God. There's a, there's a card inside your bulletin, and you could pull it out if you like. We have been incredibly blessed by God. God has shown us such gifts. And even when you see in your mind family and friends and material gifts, that doesn't even come close to the fact that I can look beyond all of that to a future in which I will be, you will be in the presence of God forever because he gave me a gift with my name on it that says, Jim, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. All the things that you have done wrong, I put those on my son and not you. You're my son. You will dwell with me for all eternity. God has blessed us, and so how can we not bless one another with gifts like those that God has given us? He's forgiven us. How can we not forgive one another? He has given us the ability to be able to face our pride. How can we not confess our sins to one another? This card is something I'd like you to take home. I'd like you... Uh, either as individuals or as couples or as families to ask the question, God, in light of all the good gifts that you've given us, are we willing to commit ourselves to being gift givers to one another? Then use this card, write your name on it, and bring it with you when you come on October 23. All right? All right, let's pray. I want you in your mind, just before I pray, to picture all the good things that God has given you. I want you to see spouse, friends, family, material blessings, but even more than that, a future in which he says, you are my adopted son and you will dwell with me for all eternity. You picture that. And then I'll pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed by your goodness to us. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we recognize that we have you to thank for every good thing. It was not because we're so smart or so deserving or because we have so much to offer you. It's purely because of who you are, a God of measureless grace and goodness. And we praise you as the giver of all gifts. We ask you to show us 
Wherever there is a spirit of pride that is trying to grow, show us that. Help us deal with that. To be a people who are humble and earnest in their devotion to you in all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.